Welcome to The Food Group, a podcast aimed at people who love to know a little more about the food that they're eating, and I don't mean what's in it. Let's get this straight, there's no science stuff coming up, but more about how the dish they have chosen came to be, came to even exist at all. What drove someone to put the ingredients together in the first place, and what made others copy them and keep it alive for sometimes centuries, never changing it or abandoning it? Oh, and I might have fibbed a bit about the science. We may have to sneak a little bit in, but trust me, it's just the fun stuff. And before we start, a disclaimer. These tales are just that, tales. They are meant to entertain and be retold with even more wit and invention. Their foothold in any kind of fact is pure coincidence, although, where possible, we have tried to back them up with legitimate evidence or endorsement. However, it's very likely that none of what you're about to hear ever happened. So let's begin. And we start our collection with a recipe that many people may never have tried ever in their lives. It is not so popular these days, and at first glance, there are a few things more unlikely to go together in a recipe than crayfish, chicken, eggs, and cognac. But there are also times when culinary minds are pushed to the extremes of their creative ability and find themselves in a situation where, quite simply, needs must. The origin of chicken marengo is one of those times. So... It's June the 14th in the year 1800 and war rages across Europe. A newly installed first consul of France named Napoleon Bonaparte is not having a particularly good day. His army is fighting for its life against a stronger and more resilient Austrian army led by General Michael Friedrich von Meller. After making a rare mistake, Napoleon's men were fighting a rearguard action. But Napoleon's day took a turn for the better, and Mella failed to seize on the opportunity, and with characteristic vigour, Napoleon roused his men to an historic victory in their final duel in the fields surrounding the northern Italian town of Marengo. Napoleon believed an army marched on his stomach and always took with him a highly trained battalion of chefs and cooks. For this campaign, it was led by a man called simply Dunand. Now, very little is known of Danan, no records of his time when Napoleon even exist, but his contribution to the world of gastronomy is recognised in the majority of the food world's pillars of wisdom, from the Oxford Companion of Food to the Larousse Gastronomique, no less. On that summer's afternoon in 1800, Danand took his orders and began to think. I know that uh, Napoleon hadn't had any food all day, uh, so uh, really I need to find the way of doing a nice meal, because not only it'll be euphoric because he won the battle, but I think he want to thank all his general and he want to celebrate. Yeah, so, so uh, the only thing we could find was three eggs, four tomato, one small chicken, six crayfish, and a saucepan and some bread. It's probably wise to point out at this point that all French voices in this podcast will be played by the brilliant chef Daniel Galmiche, whose skills I will be utilising in a much better way very shortly. So, off they went. First straight into the small town of Marengo, where the war-stricken people had little left. But Danand and his men took chickens, eggs and all the vegetables they could find. This being Italy... That meant tomatoes. He had only a little butter, some garlic and soldiers' biscuits in his stores, but he began to create a dish. He started by using his knowledge of classical Provencal dishes. Marengo is not far from Provence, and he would have made something quite straightforward had a few of his men not returned with a barrel of fresh crayfish they had pulled from the Bomida di Spigno River, which ran adjacent to the town. He couldn't waste them, so what could he come up with? Here's fat chef Daniel Gamish again, but this time to take us through the recipe. Okay, I use, I use the bread with water, so I mix it and I make a small panade, which is a kind of paste which will help to thicken the sauce. 
uh, and uh, cut the chicken in pieces and uh, roast the chicken in his, uh, in his pan uh, quickly uh, because we find some oil a little bit as well uh, and roasted, add the, the tomato and uh, start to stew a little bit the meat and uh, uh, also with the three eggs we just fry them and add it, add it to that and at the last minute we put the crayfish and here we created a kind of a new recipe of chicken marengo due to the battle of marengo and napoleon thought it was a really good meal and all he wanted for his next battle was the same dish so once slightly poached he topped his classic chicken promesar with crayfish boiled eggs and a sprinkling of crumbled soldiers biscuits and the feast began to say Napoleon loved the dish would be an understatement. He was known to be a very fast eater with some meals taking less than 20 minutes, but today he ate like a man possessed. Later in life, Napoleon would be plagued with constipation and stomach problems as a result of the way he ate, but for now he dove headfirst through several platefuls. Having clutched victory from the jaws of defeat, he was full of energy and marvelled at Danan's inventiveness and skill. This dish was like an omen to him, a creation that embodied the landscape of his greatest victory. It was to become the dish he would mark all his victories with from that point on. Later, and despite Danan's efforts to swap out ingredients for grander things like lobster and wild mushrooms, Napoleon would insist it was made exactly as he had it on this day in the battlefields of Italy. So, next time you settle down for a plate of chicken marengo, raise a toast and thank the greatest general in history and his wonderfully creative chef, Donand. You're listening to the Food Group Podcast, where we will attempt to unravel the stories behind some of the most famous dishes in existence today. But it's not just food we're interested in. Wine often has a story to tell too. The nature of drinking occasionally makes it difficult to remember them, but one or two bottles have created their own little bit of history. And from time to time, we will feature one wine from our very own bucket list. In almost every case, we haven't tried them or even got near them, but we hope to lay down a case that will convince you all to jot them down and pray to whichever god you worship that you come close to them one day. However, we will also make a list of wines we have tried, and we think you should too. A much more accessible list of wine styles that aren't your usual choices, and we hope lead you along a path of delicious discovery. Wine expert Ollie Smith is a man who is overly qualified for this job, and he's been writing and broadcasting about wine for well over a decade. So what's he picked out for us? So the wine that I'm choosing that everybody in the world must taste at least once in their lifetime is Tokai from Hungary. I have adored this stuff since my first sip. It's a sweet wine and don't let that put you off because it also has a bracing zestiness to it. So if you imagine you know, flavours like marmalade or in the old days opal fruit, starburst, whatever, sweetness and zing is what this wine has that no other really can deliver. Osu refers to the shriveled berries and this is really where the magic of Tokai comes from. It's all about noble rot. We're in sort of a little valley surrounded by the Bodrog and Tirza rivers, and they create mist. Mist rises up through the vineyards, and it has a desiccating effect on the grapes. So the noble rot is this kind of like beneficial fungus, uh, like happy athlete's foot. If you, and it's just, it really does send little needles into the skins of the grapes. It literally desiccates them, so it concentrates sugar and acidity. And they desiccate down into this intense, beautiful, oh, it's just, it's like that sunburst orange colour when the wine ages. And they, they age these wines deep in these caverns in Hungary. It's 
so mesmeric to go down into them. If you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, they were more or less a Moria where the dwarves dug too deeply and ra they roused a Balrog down there. I don't think this is quite a Balrog, but Tokai is certainly something that loves to sleep. It's a very easy wine to mature. And as it ages, that sweetness just becomes a little bit richer, a little bit more savoury character to it. Uh, you know, it goes from tasting like apricots to tasting like dried figs. It's amazing with sweet puddings. It's incredible with anything that's got fruit in it, like a tart tatin. But with something like a Stilton cheese to offset the salty character, God, it just takes me into dreamland. It is one of my favourite ones. It's probably the category of wine I've got most of in my personal cellar at home. Tokai from Hungary. It's available everywhere. It's unbeatable. Go high on the sweetness. Go five or six Petronius. Just look for five or six little stars on the bottle. Get that stuff. Pour it all over your chest and rub it in, my darlings. Nothing will make you feel finer. Now, we all know that famous quote from the film With Nell and I. You don't? Oh, it's the one where Richard E. Grant demands for greatest wines available to humanity from a tea shop owner in Penrith. Anyway, the point is that sometimes it's fun to try and list the greatest wines of all time, and we're going to try to build our own mythically good wine rack. By way of introduction, it's worth noting that there are some people that held the year of 1947 as probably the greatest wine vintage of them all, and there is one wine in that particular year that many hold as the greatest wine ever produced, certainly that may still exist. It's the 1947 Cheval Blanc, and here's Ollie to explain why it deserves its place on the list of greatest ever wines. I'm not entirely sure if I've ever tasted this. I've certainly dreamed about tasting this. I went through all my notes before I kind of started to speak about this. Usually I'm meticulous about keeping wine notes. In this case, I've written about it a lot, uh, but in a way that I can't, I don't think I've tasted it is the upshot. I don't think I have, but in my dreams, I know exactly what this tastes like. It's a monster, okay? So 1947, hot vintage. Bordeaux should be about elegance and style and restraint. This was none of those things. It was a wine that nearly reached 15% in alcohol from an incredibly hot hot vintage. I mean, it was one that winemakers had to use ice to cool down their ferments. It was a bit of a Frankenstein, volatile acidity in there. On paper, you're basically looking at a cadaver, but then it rejuvenates and comes back to life in the bottle and amazingly defies all expectations, not just on initial tastings where people thought, wow, this is almost port-like in its intensity, but longer term, through the decades. We're talking today, it tastes marvellous. It's resonant, it's fruity, it's got depth. It has a savoury strata to it. But the tasting note in common, if you read around this, is its life, its vividity. And it's still something that's a cultural touchstone today. In Ratatouille, the animated movie, Anton Ego, the feared critic, visits Gusto's. He orders a 1947 Cheval Blanc. And why wouldn't he? He knows his onions. He knows his Ratatouille. And this, my friends, even though Cheval Blanc was omitted from the 1855 classification of Bordeaux that put so many other wines above it, this wine is one that you really need to target. Get your Olympian sandals on, fly through that cork, that magical stargate into the bottle and make your home inside a bottle of Cheval Blanc 1947. Thanks, Ollie. A worthy starting point for our cellar of the gods. If you'd like to add one or suggest one, then go to our Facebook page and let us know. Don't forget to like it or you can reach us via foodgrouppodcast at gmail.com. So, let's continue our quest to try and explain how and why some of the most well-known dishes in our recipe books came to exist and shine some light on the people that may have created them. And our next story begins in the glamorous dining room of the Café de Paris in Monte Carlo. Or perhaps it doesn't, but more of that shortly. 
and sitting in this dining room in 1895 was none other than Edward, the Prince of Wales, later to become King Edward VII. Here was probably Britain's greatest gourmand, a man known for his love of fine dining and his passion for the elaborate French ways of eating. At the time, diners were served in the classic French style with big displays of dishes put out in front of people for them to choose from, then taken away if uneaten. It was messy and wasteful, and usually meant tepid food. It may have worked for the Dauphin of France, but Edward found it dull and moved England and the royal court towards the new Russian style of service of set courses and food coming in stages, or à la carte. Here's that Frenchman, Daniel Garmisch again. The, the trailer service for me was very interesting because it's a theatre, it's a cinema, it's, a, it's kind of make the link between the kitchen and the front house. So I think I did enjoy that. And also, I think the Metro D at the time had a huge experience, a presence which was amazing. And it was like a, a conductor of an orchestra and, and all was coming for the kitchen, but actually the chef was not the star. When you, it starts to be a la carte, the chef becomes a star. Thank you, Daniel. So back to our 19th century dining room in Monte Carlo. The room is a buzz of excitement thanks to our hungry prince's arrival. He has eaten well. Some report him enjoying up to 12 courses at each meal. And this was after a breakfast which often featured porridge, bacon and kedgeree. And not either or, but all of them, by the way. However, he was still in his prime in 1895 and was entertaining a young female companion. 1895 was smack bang in the middle of France's Belle Epoque, or beautiful period too, for people were full of enthusiasm and artistry was flourishing in all areas of the creative world, including restaurants. One way in which the Café de Paris expressed itself was with flamboyant, or should that be flambéde, table-side dining. <sighs> Edward loved this, and with the wave of a hand ordered his favourite pancakes in orange and Grand Marnier sauce. A young waiter named Henri Chapontier wheeled his trolley over and lit the burner. Crepe Suzette is it's, it's a fantastic uh, dish because not only of the cinema and the theatre behind it, but, but the smell about the orange and the oranges and the flambe of the Grand Marnier. And I think that's the reason people love it. But the main reason, probably the show of it, is done in front of the customer. The pancake is already folded. There's a little bit of, uh, of butter with orange and oranges put back in it, and you turn it and the smell starts to go everywhere in the dining room. And suddenly you flambe and everybody, wow, look at that. And you start to eat it, it's sweet, it's acidic, it's uh, smell oranges. And I guess it's go all over the dining room and people might, all the table would say, I want a crepe Suzette probably. The prince devoured his pancakes with his fork and lapped up the sauce with a large spoon, roaring to his table how much he took delight in this dish and he felt it needed a name. The youngest at the table was a girl by the name of Suzette, the daughter of a friend of his, and so he declared to Charpentier and the whole room that these were the best crepes Suzettes he had ever had, and they must be called that from now on to mark this occasion. But this is where we have a problem. The source of this story is Charpentier's own book, published some years later in 1934. He was only 15 at the time of the prince's visit, and many, including the authors of the Larousse Gastronomique, question his claim. Would a 15-year-old boy really be making desserts for the Prince of Wales? What's not in doubt is that Charpentier certainly played a big part in making the dish well-known, as when he left France, he headed to the United States of America, where he opened his own restaurant in Long Island, where at least two presidents parted over a pancake, or three. By now, the recipe was everywhere, and even a great chef Escoffier. 
who ran the Savoy Dining Room in London, included it in his enormous and influential cooking book, The Guide Culinaire. So, if it wasn't Charpentier, then who? Well, two others, perhaps. First, a local Parisian chef who made the dish for a theatrical production of La Comédie Française. The simple act of flambé was included in the drama, allowing the audience to see an act of cooking on the stage. He supposedly named the dish after the actress who was required to cook them in the performance. Could be the truth, I guess. The final suggestion is that they were made in the court of King Louis XIV by the chef Jean Redoux in honour of the Princess Suzette of Carignac. I guess we'll never know for certain, but I think there's plenty of fun to be had wondering, and even more fun if you do it whilst flambéing your pancakes. Well, that brings to a close this edition of The Food Group. If you like these stories, you can read more of them in the book Who Put the Beef in Wellington by me, James Winter, available very reasonably priced via Amazon or in most good bookshops and plenty of bad ones. We'll all reconvene very soon for more culinary tales. And if you have any reason to believe you know a better story for any of the recipes featured, do get in touch as we'd love to hear from you. And if you'd like to sponsor the podcast or just generally pay for the podcast, please do get in touch because we'd love to keep making them and love to keep sharing these stories with you. You can get to us via our Facebook page for Food Group or you can email us at foodgrouppodcast at gmail.com. Bye for now. The Food Group is a CM Audio production.